where supply chain is is really the best at this is at the intersection of three areas. Number one is, which has traditionally been the profit motive, like where do we make money? How can we cut costs? Uh, second is, where does it fit into the identity of the brand? And third is, how does it fit into growing consumer trends? I'm Adam Polka. And I'm Bill Denby. Together, we'll be talking to supply chain experts from around the world who are tackling challenges in their corner of the industry. We believe that people are the change makers that drive innovation. That's why this supply chain podcast is about learning from those who lead by example. We hope that the conversations you hear will inspire you to drive change within your own organization. This is the Great Supply Chain Podcast. Let's jump in. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka. And I'm Bill Denby. Today, we're going to look at the retail landscape in 2022. Our guests are going to try and make a couple of predictions as we continue to crawl out of the retail rubble that the pandemic has left behind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been a, a rocky road for retail these, uh, these past couple of years, Bill. Uh, that uh, that steady shift from uh, brick and mortar to click and mortar was uh, pretty seriously rattled as digital commerce bullied its way into retail outfits that simply weren't ready for it. Uh, so now we're at this point where those those band-aids and stop gaps need to be looked at uh, in favor of more of a long tail lens. So we've brought on two retail experts to look at the 2022 landscape and beyond, uh, Rick and Guy. Yeah, spot on, Adam. Uh, Guy is the Vice President and Industry Principal for Retail at Texas, and uh, Guy was actually our very first guest on this podcast and available for your, at your favorite podcast platform. Uh, we chatted uh, about supply chain convergence and how retailers are becoming brands and brands are becoming retailers and everyone's coming together. Welcome, Guy. Thanks, guys. I guess uh, my first session was good enough. You invited me back, so I really appreciate it. Well, your audio worked better last time, so we'll see how this one goes. See if you come back for uh, for a third. <laughs> <laughs> Our other guest, uh, Rick Watson, is CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of Watson Weekly, uh, your essential e-commerce digest. Uh, Rick has helped companies position themselves favorably in the market by leveraging digital commerce. So, Rick, you sort of sit at the nexus of two of the biggest shifts in the economy right now, uh, technology and retail. How did you get here? Tell us, tell us a bit about you and, uh, and your background. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I, I've enjoyed your show in the past. Um, so, in terms of my background, my background is really in computer science and technology. That's that's kind of where I started my journey. And I was lucky enough to be a software engineer at one of the first uh, software companies at kind of at the beginning of e-commerce, uh, you know, back in the end of 99. Uh, and so got to see the rise of you know, the huge marketplaces like eBay and Amazon and really the start of sellers offering products and services there. You know, back before then, no one thought you could ever make a business selling on these marketplaces, uh, which obviously proved themselves over you know over the past twenty years or so. So, kind of uh, evolved from there in the various uh, technology roles, and then moving over into product management and business management. Was CEO of a an e-commerce software company in New York City that was venture backed that then ended up selling of a supply chain company, Pitney Bowes. I was head of product management for a cross-border supply chain service uh, arm of the business. And then finally started my consulting business. So um, 
being in and around e-commerce and marketplaces and, and digital strategy is, is just something I've always enjoyed. And and you offer some really interesting insights into the market also, Rick. Let, let's get into things. We, we actually asked you on to this podcast because of just a perfectly timed LinkedIn post. Um, you posted about Bed Bath & Beyond teaming up with Kroger. And I just happened to see your post, I think maybe an hour after getting off the phone with Guy, uh, where we were talking about some of the some of the trends that uh, we can expect in 2022, uh, actually in preparation for this episode. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that Guy mentioned was how we're likely to see uh, a couple of partnership head scratchers in the retail world. And he brought up the Kohl's Amazon example. Let me first get your take on, on why we're seeing some of these more creative collaborations. You know, is there is there a common thread? You know, what the motivators that are leading to these kinds of arrangements? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, first of all, I think the tie-ups are interesting. And I think there there are a couple of reasons for this, um, and, and not all of them are the same. I think the decline of malls is one reason that you see more brands and companies tying up with the biggest of the big retailers, meaning um, Walmart and Target. So you could see dozens of brands that maybe used to even have their own stores and malls and now decided that it's much more efficient for them to be in Walmart and Target. I mean, Disney and Apple are, are great examples. Um, so that's that, that's one thing. Um, Amazon, I feel, is particularly in the last couple of years, despite the rise of e-commerce, struggled with the lack of physical footprint. And so just the supply chain costs of probably a billion returns a year to Amazon that has to go all the way back through the supply chain uh, is quite expensive and wasteful. Uh, and so that's, that's to me, that's the starting point to make that more convenient for the consumer and to use other properties. And so I think Kohl's was a way for them to test and learn uh, really on someone else's dime. I don't think it's proved that beneficial for Kohl's, um, you know, despite the person coming into the store. Uh, I, I've not seen any statistics that's shown that they, they, they have benefited that from a, from an upsell point of view, like the Amazon customer just happened to want to shop at Kohl's at the time, the same time they're returning that, you know, strains credibility a little bit. Um, and then Bed Bath and Kroger, uh, I think Bed Bath obviously is in a reinvention phase. They have a completely new management team in the next couple of years, and they're trying to build their next act. And I think their partnership with Kroger is really trying to test and learn as well. They're introducing an, a number of new private label brands. Uh, I think that's really the purpose of the Kroger partnership. Uh, remains to be seen if, if Kroger needs this as much as Bed Bath & Beyond does because Bed Bath & Beyond historically in the past five years or so has been kind of more on the ropes. And you'd also mentioned something around um, developing a marketplace in, in one of your podcasts. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, um, so Kroger has developed its own marketplace. Bed Bath & Beyond just made an announcement that they are developing a marketplace. And in, in, in one sense, um, this makes all the sense in the world for for Bed Bath and Beyond because you know just because of the simple word Beyond in their name, and more selection means more things that the consumer can be excited about to shop there. Particularly if you if there's a focus on the home category, so that's that's sort of the positives of this move in that it could deepen selection. Selection means more traffic. It means more uh, high, you know bigger basket sizes and more things you could offer consumers. On the downside. 
Uh, I still haven't seen a differentiator for Bed Bath Beyond, and this is really not the fault of the marketplace launch. It's more still a fault of the brand. Like if they're going to add all this new selection, the vast majority of the selection is already going to be on Amazon. Why should I buy it over here versus where where I'm already buying it today? That I have not seen answered, even in the number of press releases and news reports. And so I try to look sometimes for what's not being said, and and I I didn't see a a, a reason to exist <laughs> for for, for some of these products on this new channel talking about a reason to exist i saw a thing in the press just i think it was just yesterday about amazon starbucks have you seen that one with the at where where the amazon retail stores the in-person retail stores are going to have a significant starbucks presence and that's a that's a connection that just, I'm not quite sure what Starbucks is going to get out of it, but I'm sure that they're going to be be present in these stores for 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 some reason or another, and and Jeff will figure it out and make make a make a bazillion dollars out of it. But it's a it's a very interesting connection point. I think that one's that one, that is one we should be watching. Starbucks and Amazon. Talk about full circle where you've got. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Starbucks with Amazon. You used to have Starbucks in Barnes and Noble. Now, uh, now they've moved over to Amazon, brick and mortar. I know, I know. It's an interesting story because I think full circle when we talk about Starbucks and Amazon. So, as you guys might know, right? I I worked at Forrester. So, Rick, when you were doing the stuff in e-commerce, I was at Forrester Research, right? Ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. And I remember Amazon coming in and talking to us back then, and they had already, or Jeff had already started talking to Starbucks about putting returns kiosks in a Starbucks store where he knew that the majority of you know Amazon shoppers were already Starbucks users. So he said, hey, if you buy a book, you don't want it. Rather than putting it in a box and sending it back to me, when you go to your Starbucks in the morning and get your latte, just drop it off in this Amazon return box within a Starbucks. And then we'll send a truck around every day or two and pick up all the uh, return inventory. So it's really interesting. And to your point too, you know, Adam and Bill, it's like, you know, this is like Amazon was, you know, I mean, Starbucks and Barnes and Nobles were together. And now Starbucks is like, hey, I'll go with uh, this guy as well, right? So from that perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? It's bringing that experiential side of, you know, sipping your coffee as you go shopping through the aisles or read a book or or try the new, you know, Amazon Echo Dot or what have you. I think it's uh, it makes a lot of sense. So if we're looking, uh, if we're making a prediction about the future, uh, anyone want to take a stab at another uh, maybe not brands themselves, but at least uh, conceptual arrangements, collaborations that uh, that we may be looking at? I, I have a crazy one for you guys. And I think I saw a story about this. We talked about some interesting sort of moves, but there's a, there a small article a few weeks ago about Best Buy expanding some of their e-med uh, home medical device equipment within their store. So I think... Uh, I think an interesting one would be looking at Best Buy potentially partnering with some kind of mini clinic, whether it's from Walgreens or CVS, and then tying that into wearables that are you know tied back into uh, your doctor. You know, I mean, we obviously see that with Apple pushing hard with their Apple Watches. It's really becoming uh, more of a medical device than anything else, right? You can take an EKG, see your your blood oxygen level, things like that. Well, hey, Best Buy is you know a massive seller of obviously electronics. A lot of it is personal electronics. Uh, I think they were one of the very first ones when they brought in the Magnolia store within the store to show you what a you know a full 
you know, home theater experience would be like. So why couldn't Best Buy now expand that to the the personal care sector where, you know, uh, Rick goes in to buy his new Apple Watch and then Guy goes in to buy his new iPad or his new Surface. Uh, and then Best Buy sells you on top of that, the ability to tie that into some kind of uh, medical device, medical checking, medical product, and then partner with a CVS or a Walgreens or a Rite Aid uh, to provide some of the services within the store. Yeah, I like that idea, Guy. Uh, as far as I can tell, you might see it happen. I, I agree with you. The value of those experiences is that they're immersive for consumers and they allow them to learn about those things. Speaking of which, crazy things that are happening is that Facebook, or I'm sorry, Meta, is developing <laughs> its own store to uh, sell its its goggles. Do you think those will be in Best Buy? <laughs> I think if Zuckerberg could sell him anywhere, he would. Uh, and, and I'm sure he had tied it to some kind of, uh, it's a virtual experience. And then you can actually, you know, have a virtual meeting with your doctor or with your gaming friends or what have you. Uh, but that would be definitely interesting to see that. And, and I, I think the whole meta Facebook play with virtual is is really interesting. And, and I, I, I think it's a little smarmy, but that's my opinion. What? You don't think Zuck has your best interest at heart? <laughs> No, you're absolutely right, Rick. He's he's absolutely looking out for me, and and especially my teenage <laughs> son and, and everybody else. Right? That's that's his primary concern is our mental well being. <laughs> but I think it I think it leads into uh, another interesting topic that uh, that I mentioned in the opener. Uh, th- this notion of uh, clicks versus bricks. It used to be this uh, click and mortar used to define this specific business model that that balanced online and offline operations. But I imagine the folks around this table here uh, would argue that we are very much in a post-click V-brick retail ecosystem. But we really are all over the map in terms of what that means. What strategy will rule the roost in 2022? You know, whether we're talking about Meta or these other collaborations, Best Buy, whatnot, it seems to be this sort of melding of the two. Let's start start with you, Guy. What do you think? You know, it's interesting, Adams. I think it's it's one of those... Battle, so to speak, that I think a lot of us who've been in this space for a while now have had, which is sort of the old way of measuring and of looking at retail, you know, is passe, right? I, I think separating bricks and clicks, looking at like same source sales as a metrics, um, you know, all of these, I think we've called it to question when the reality is, you know, the four of us here and all, all everybody listening uh, to this podcast as consumers, we don't really at least we shouldn't look at, oh, well, you know, is, am I getting something in the store? Did I buy it in the store? Or did I go online first? Or, you know, what's that sort of separation between the bricks and the clicks? All we care about is the brand, or we care about the relationship with that retailer or that brand and how that retailer or brand fulfills and satisfies our des- desires, our, our purchasing in some level it doesn't matter anymore, right? We look for things such as, hey, if I see a product uh, and I want to buy it, you know, are you going to get it to me in, a, in my time, my timely fashion? Are you going to get it to me properly? Uh, if I have questions, how do I take care of it? If I have returns, how do I do it? So I think this notion of bricks and clicks, you know, we, we really need to, to, to look at the notion of e-commerce, brick and mortar commerce. It's commerce. It's retail. If I'm Walmart, if I'm Target, if I'm the small mom and pop wine and cheese shop down the street here in, in Vermont. It's it's your name, it's your brand and how you fulfill that customer order becomes secondary to just being a good partner. So I do think we have to work on changing the paradigm of how we measure retail uh, between bricks and clicks and you know who gets the credit. You know, there's a great analogy I saw again we talked about LinkedIn, you know, someone posted this on LinkedIn saying, if I schedule my appointment to get my haircut, 
through the app, but then I go to the salon to get my haircut. Where did that transaction happen? Was it online? Was it in the store? You know, it's it's the the two are, are one and the same now. And I think that's the strategy that we need to take as we move forward. I think uh, we were we're working with a very large organization that sells vaping products work with their fulfillment of their their vaping products. And I I think this is a fascinating example of just what you're saying. These guys want a personal relationship with the customer. They want to go direct to consumer. They want to offer personalization at scale, but they don't want to cut off the relationship with a retailer either. So their model for fulfillment is buy online, pick up in your local retailer, which I think is very interesting at the stores we're designating because we're ensuring our local retailers get protected. But you can still personalize at scale. You can still get personalized products. You can still get that relationship directly to the, to the manufacturer, but the retailer is actually in, involved in the fulfillment of the process. That's a that's a wrinkle that I hadn't seen as much, uh, and, and we're starting to see it now. And we don't even know what they're calling it, but it's I think it's a fascinating kind of twist to that uh, clicks and bricks thing, kind of hybrid. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting, Bill. And I, I think it reminds me of what a little bit of what Zalando is doing in Germany and Europe, where they have a fashion marketplace and they're allowing retailers to list their inventory there. The transaction happens on Zalando, the physical sort of consummation happens in the store and the, you know, the customer walks into the store, which is, is kind of sort of an additional wrinkle on top of what you're talking about, not just for a brand on its own, but also for a collection of brands on a purely digital channel. I think it's really interesting that point, Rick. And I, I, I feel as if this has been empowered by, you know, and we're going to laugh at this when I say the internet, but this is empowered where all of a sudden part of what held us back in the past from doing that is having that visibility across right all the channels, whether it was my own personal inventory, but now it's you know for example, hey, I know that um, you know to build example, I've got X amount of SKUs at the local Seven Eleven, and I have Y amount of SKUs you know at the local mobile gas station, right? And therefore, I can now make that available to my customer. And I think that's something to your point, Rick, where as you talk about like Zalando, like these these large platforms that can collect that information about the available SKUs, they can now do these things like, hey, you want to order through me, but go pick up at this you know, third-party store? Yep, absolutely. But until we have that ability to see the data and to allocate you know, inventory, make it available to promise, right? that was sort of that, that digital ability now has unlocked that opportunity from a physical perspective. And I think to your point, Rick, that example is Lando spot on, right? I think that's, that's really exciting. So, so if we're dancing between uh, digital and physical and giving customers every possible option to get their product, it makes for, for incredible challenges in that last mile, and we've touched on it. Something I read is that with next day delivery plus Uber-type delivery services, is Bopis even needed? Is buy online, pick up, and store even needed anymore? I, I can I can order something online and have it delivered to me within the hour in this Uber type of approach, next day e-commerce, or through slow logistics, a greener option. I, I can I can pick it up in the store at any time. So if I'm in a really uh, big time crunch, I can actually head to the store and get it. As e-com and delivery services shorten their delivery timelines, does, does that demand for Bopis get impacted? Adam, I don't think so. I think Bopis is a different 
animal. And I think we're going to see Bopis in areas that we haven't seen it before, like in grocery and in, you know, in some of the department stores and things like that. I think we're still going to see, that's where we're going to see this kind of a fulfillment approach. But I think that, I don't think Bopis is going anywhere. I think it's here to stay, but I think we're going to see it in places we didn't really th- see it before. That's where it's going to be really focused, where, you know, I mean, who, who wants to carry bottles of water out to their car nowadays, you know? Whoever is going to do that again, you know, uh, just stick it in, you know, order it online and you carry it to my trunk, you know. Uh, so it's, it's those kinds of things. I think that we're going to see more and more Bopis around. And the other side of it, I think you're right. I think it's going to go across to the econ fulfillment side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think these store-based fulfillment models are continuing to gain traction led by the example that Target is really setting for the industry. And if you look at what BOPUS has become, BOPUS has evolved, has sort of stayed on its own, but it's also evolved into curbside where you don't even have to get into the store. And so you, you might, to me, I consider that a specialization, a little bit of a specialization of BOPUS. You know, if, if you look at it at the macro level and it's way more convenient for the consumer, it is literally the fastest growing format in retail today is, is curbside just because of the convenience factor for that consumer. And the fact that it's just delivered from a store infrastructure means that that the cost to get that parcel into the consumer's hand is significantly better than traditional e-commerce. I think what's interesting about Bopez, Bopac, and to your point, Rick, where we're seeing Bopac growing is I've even started seeing this where, you know, when you go to pick up and you're, you pull into the spot to pick up now, savvy retailers are trying to figure out, well, let's, how do we get some of those impulse buys that we used to get when you were sitting at the cash register, right? And they're even offering you now like, oh, hey, as you wait to get your, you know, four bags of mulch and, you know, rake and all this from Home Depot or Lowe's, like, here's some other things that customers could use, right? Do you you need X, Y, or Z? Or can we bring you a, you know, a Coke Zero while you're waiting or something like that, right? So I think we're even seeing more savvy retailers starting to look at you know, technology to make even the impulse buys occur at the curbside, which I think is fascinating. Is to your point, that just demonstrates that this is here to stay. And now we're going to try to figure out how we maximize incremental revenue from that point of pickup, if you will. Right. And there's and there's a huge tie-in between these pickup options and another enormous theme uh, on the horizon, uh, not so much on the horizon, we're in it right now, is this theme of sustainability. Uh, I, w- I want to get uh, your thoughts on uh, sustainability in retail today, where we are, uh, sort of the impact that the pandemic has had, uh, and where we're going, right? Right now, consumers care and corporations are paying attention. So where are we and, and what's supply chain's role? I, I mean, I'll start with that one. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we've we've seen, and I would sort of go back 10, 15 years, where we started to see the discussion around green and being sustainable. And at the time, I feel a lot of it was sort of lip service. But I think as you fast forward, what, what I'm seeing at least is, A, there's a true business value behind being more sustainable, uh, whether it's reducing some of your costs, whether it's like a Levi's, you know, extracting water from production of their jeans, things of that nature. But we're also seeing from places like in Europe where they have much higher like return rates, uh, they have much higher sort of products coming back into their channel where they have to handle them, whether it's through a recycling program or being able to deconstruct the products into some raw materials. 
But I also think, and and I I semi-roll my eyes when I say this, but we haven't talked about the millennials, but the millennials are really driving some of this change behavior where I believe they are truly now voting with their wallets when it comes to sustainability. And they're truly being conscious of brands that are more sustainable, whether it's making sure they have good labor laws, labor rules with manufacturing, whether they're sourcing the right place, whether they're not you know using too much CO2 to transport the product. Um, I think we're, we're seeing more and more of that across the board, driven in large part by consumers' consciousness, but also by businesses realizing there's a value behind it. And to me, at least, I think supply chain has a tremendous role to play in this. And you know, we could talk about this for hours and, and hours about it because I think there's so many areas where supply chain can help. But I certainly think everything from sourcing to labor, transportation, storage, and returns are going to be big areas of focus. Yeah, just to continue on, I think where supply chain is is really the best at this is at the intersection of three areas. Number one is, which has traditionally been the profit motive, like where do we make money? How can we cut costs? Uh, second is, where does it fit into the identity of the brand? And third is, how does it fit into growing consumer trends? Like what consumers, what, what the younger generations are doing with the cultural zeitgeists. And so to the extent that those three all align is you're going to get the biggest acceleration in, in sustainability, where it's not necessarily a brand identity, then it kind of comes more into consumer preference and you know and obviously profit motive which is which is huge in any, in any kind of corporate environment and so you've seen you know things like allbirds which is not necessarily downstream supply chain which i know you guys focus a lot on but upstream supply chain you know materials what what kind of materials are you producing your products with uh, that's kind of one. Second, there have been innovation with companies like Olive, which is you know a startup that's working in reusable sort of containers for packaging that you're not just sending boxes to the consumer that are going to get recycled. They're actually shipped back in the other direction with goods and, and, and returned and reused over and over. So there's a huge component of waste that, that is done, particularly in B2B transactions where it doesn't have to be consumer packaged anyway. Um, what, what does it matter? I think from my perspective a little bit cynical perhaps but uh i think it the supply chain is the enabler of sustainability simply by making it profitable that is their fundamental role they're gonna have to make it so it's possible and not lose money because at the the end of the day that's what organizations need to do is be sustainable and still hold the hold a position where they have a decent margin on the product and so i think they're I think sustainability is going to drive innovation in the supply chain in many different areas. Whether it's a, whether it's how the last mile is is managed, whether it's how the how the supply chain integrates with the customer in a, in, in in different ways. Uh, I think there's there's going to be lots of different uh, uh, aspects to it because, as you guys said, it, it you know people care these days, and I think that's going to be increasingly people care. I think where we were 20 years ago with with uh, with some of the things that aren't as socially acceptable now as they were 20 years ago I think you're going to start seeing you know the the sustainability side is going to be really coming to the forefront much much more and I think our supply chain leaders are going to be challenged with both the the fulfillment the outbound fulfillment and managing returns in a in a sustainable way and they're going to have to step up because it's really going to challenge them. A lot of uh, press recently about a cyclical economy and cyclical, uh, you know, taking back returns, recycling them, putting them back out there. I think we're going to see a lot more of those kinds of activities, uh, whether it's a brand protecting its own brand by taking in genes 
recycling them, making them, you know, new again and bringing them out, whether it's a shoe company resoling. I think those are the kinds of things we're going to see more and more of. And the supply chain is going to have to enable that in a way that it's not going to, the company's not going to lose their shirt. So I think it's going to be a challenging times ahead. Right, right. So, so Rick, we're looking at uh, 2022 ahead of us. What's your What's your advice to retailers? What What do they need to pay attention to? Uh, wait, look, number one is COVID, <laughs> and um, it, to to me, prediction is a. I, I don't I don't love doing predictions. I, I love doing almost modeling because predictions will get you in trouble. You say this is going to happen by this date. Obviously, no one can predict the future. But if you can model, like, if this can happen, then this is what I would do in this situation. As a result, you can be prepared for multiple different scenarios. So, it, you know, here, here's some example. There are two big supply chain constraints right now. One is uh, induced by COVID, and one is induced more by labor. Uh, and so, COVID has caused delays in ports, you know, going all the way back to origin countries like Vietnam, China with zero COVID policies and and beyond. Workers being at ports in the US, it's a little bit more supply labor issues, which affects, you know, many 3PLs and logistics provider all across the country. So I think the COVID, you know, I think everyone is hopeful that the COVID supply chain outages will start easing in the first half of next year. But labor, everyone is still concerned about how do you hire the literally the people required because and this is the point that a lot of people miss. Demand is up and keeps rising. And so if in the in the event that demand keeps rising and the labor supply is fixed, you're going to have serious problems and innovation required to to bridge that gap. I think that Rick's idea of the sort of, you know, if this happens, then this, I think is spot on because I think overarching all this is still COVID, right? I, and and I'll, I'll use it. It's kind of a bad joke, but, you know, End of last year, we're all wearing masks. I bought my son a mask with a Santa Claus on it. And we kind of half joke like, well, you'll only get one season of usage out of this mask, right? And we're going to get rid of it. Well, unfortunately, guess what? I think he's going to get another season of usage out of the Santa Claus mask. But I think that's the part, to, to Rick's point, sort of at the end of the day, until we truly understand or solve or control for COVID, um, we don't really know, right? The predictions we make or what we think. I mean, there is no new normal. There never really was. And that's another another soapbox I'll get on in a second, which is, you know, I think in retail, uh, there's never been sort of a stable state. It's always been changing since, you know, since we first had markets in, in Greece till, you know, now. But I think that what we're seeing is that the, the, the uncertainty right now is, of course, on a global scale. And until we have a better control of that, I, I don't know, you know, where we're going to go. But I do think for me, what I think we'll see the one small sort of prediction or model to, to Rick's model is is to say, I think we're going to see more and more traditional, not traditional, sorry, more and more of the, you know, digitally native brands continue to to merge or to push into the physical space. You know, we're seeing Amazon saying they're going to build department stores. Allbirds is opening more stores. You know, we're going to see more of these partnerships where folks like Casper are going to go and, you know, sell through a Target or through other uh, physical, you know, retailers. I think we're going to only continue to see that in 2022 and beyond. What does that mean? I think what it means is that we're going to see a lot of A, interesting partnerships like we've just talked about. And I think B, for us as consumers, it's going to really give us so many more options, if you will, from an experiential standpoint from a services standpoint and for lack of a better term, from a, a acquisition of 
product standpoint. Uh, and I think that's really going to be uh, something to look for in 2022, which we've seen already this year, but I think it's only going to accelerate uh, as we get to next year. I, thought, I think I'd like to, I don't know, bring forward, I think uh, a problem that in 22 is going to be a, I think, increasing, and that is the, the driver shortage. I think that transportation, long-haul transportation is going to be a major factor in retail in 22, I think. Uh, the shortage of drivers, there's 80,000 shortage. Drivers are migrating away from long-haul to uh, local delivery because they can make the same amount of money and they don't have to go sleep in their cab. And I think that is going to be an interesting um, uh, trend to watch because I think that you, we're already seeing in Europe shelves that are not fully stocked because of driver shortages. We're seeing uh, short bumps in gas prices because of driver shortages. And I think if that starts taking hold in the U.S., we we're going to we're going to have uh, some interesting times ahead because the the covid situation has driven to the local delivery marketplace up significantly and a lot of long haul drivers have moved across uh, and i think that that's uh, i think that's a that's a trend that's not going to go away so that huge shortfall in drivers uh, could could really affect uh, the uh, the end the end uh, end point of the retail chain. Yeah, and I actually I think I'm I'm paraphrasing uh, Guy here when I say this, but uh, the, the pandemic did not create these problems. Uh, the underlying issues, infrastructure, uh, labor, um, demand volatility, uh, escalating consumer demands, they've all been simmering. And and COVID has really just brought them to the surface and made us more aware of them. Those fundamental issues are still there. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting times ahead, I think. I really do. We're already seeing it in Europe, as I said, particularly in England. The UK is... Uh, is uh, is going through some very challenging times with our supply chain, and uh, we'll uh, we'll it'll be interesting to see if that uh, that evolution continues into uh, into other territories. You know, on on that um, optimistic note, uh, <laughs> I guess uh, I want to I want to thank our special guest Rick Watson. Uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts and insights. Um, if you're not already subscribed, the Watson Weekly uh, podcast is a great digest of the news of the week. Uh, Rick, do you want to give yourself any any last plug? Yeah, no. I mean, if, you know, for anyone that's inter- interested in reaching out uh, and have a conversation, you know, feel free to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for Rick Watson, or uh, you can visit my web- website at uh, rmwcommerce.com. But enjoyed uh, enjoyed the time today, and uh, appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Guy. Thank you, Bill. Uh, this has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for joining us. We hope that our guests have sparked some new ideas for you and inspire you to push the boundaries for your supply chain operation. New podcasts will be published on the first of every month. And in the meantime, please reach out. We want to know your thoughts about our guests, the topics we covered, and any ideas you might have for future episodes. You can email us at texaspodcast at texas.com. Let us know if you'd be willing to join us and perhaps share your perspective as supply chain experts. And please share us with a colleague and leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback as we continue to evolve the show and line up new compelling interviews. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified as soon as a new episode goes live. 
Until then, this has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka with Texas. And I'm Bill Denby. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you.